0: Our scripture this morning comes from Acts, and there's a few selected verses. On that day, Stephen was, uh, the day Stephen was stoned and martyred, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city." When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks, Megan, and good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer as we look at Acts chapter 8 this morning in our ongoing series in Acts about God sending us into our world to be the presence of hope. Let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather within these walls this morning to listen for your voice, and we trust, pray, and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Father, give us both ears to hear, eyes to see, the life to which you invite us. And by your grace, also responsive hearts, Father, thank you that you long to so fill us that we overflow with nothing less than your life. We're broken people, but in our brokenness, uh, you desire to use us anyway, and we're grateful for that. So uh, we give this moment to you, Father, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I'm reading a book right now entitled Go Wild, and it's about uh, uh, how you're healthier if you if you get out out in the outdoors, that would come as no surprise to some of you if you know me. But one of the th- thesis in the book is that uh, uh, the notion that all stress is bad is challenged. In other words, uh, most of us in the room, not all of us, but most of us in the room, tend to like a life that's very predictable. Right? We want tomorrow to be the same as yesterday. We we like a life that is rather placid. In fact, one of the major complaints that many of us articulate when we answer the famous American question, how you doing, is we say, oh, I'm too busy. How many have ever said that in here? And what you're saying when you say that is, a kind of subtext, I wish my life were calm. I wish it were predictable. I wish it were easy and certain and stable, and it's not. There are things intruding into the stability, right? health challenges, relationship challenges, aging parents, aging children, (laughs) in the best sense of the word, but in the stressful sense of the word as well. All those things disrupt our stasis. And then there are others of us in the room who love adrenaline, right? And uh, you would be bored with a predictable life unless you're paragliding or hanging off of a cliff or skiing at 65 miles an hour, uh, you, don't, you don't get on very well. You need excitement. And so there's a bit of a thesis this morning, as we'll see, that if you're one of those people who likes stasis, God's going to disrupt you. And if you're one of those people that likes disruption, God is going to bore you, right? And, and you need adjustment. And we all do. In our lives, we need adjustment. And all of this adjustment is intended by God to teach us to be vessels that can be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can send us out to be people of hope in the world. Now, we're going to present this this morning as we look at Acts chapter 8 this morning and next week, as we look at 8. We're going to present this this morning in three scenes, right? Uh, So it's it's basically a story, and we see these three scenes. Scene number one, the catalytic event. There's an event that moves Israel out, and it's disruptive to Israel collectively. Scene two, the fertile soil that uh, the people of God find when they're sent out. And then scene three, this story of Simon, a man who was a bit, we'll call him this, a bit of an adrenaline junkie and needs to calm down, right? And all of these things it's collectively will, will speak to us about how God is shaping us to be people of hope in the world. Because as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter three, there's a time for everything. So there's a time for predictability and stasis. And there's a time for boom. Disruption. My wife and I—we uh, talk about this sometimes. I, you may think I'm addicted to adrenaline, but in in reality, I love normal days. Right? I like a day. I like just very simple days. I actually don't care for holidays and big celebrations because they're disruptive to the norm. And when I, can, I love my job, so when I can get back to a normal day, I seem to like the normal days. Other people are bored by the normal days and they want the big days, and God is adjusting all of us so that we can be people of hope, whatever is the day, so to speak. And so the, the, at the beginning here, before even the curtain rises, in a sense, on our three scenes, I need to set the story for you. And the story will largely take place this morning in Samaria, and it's important you understand the history of Samaria if you're going to understand the significance of the story. And so understand there's a saying in John chapter 4, uh, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, what is that and why is that? Well, if you go back and you look at the Samaritans, what you discover is the only place in the entire Old Testament where the word Samaritan appears is in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 29, where it refers uh, to a person of the kingdom of northern Israel. By then, Israel has been split into via civil war And this is what we read uh, in in 2 Kings 17, 29. Every nation continued to make gods of their own and put them in shrines and high places which the Samaritans had made. And so the Samaritans apparently had made these high places allowing uh, local deities to be worshipped in various places in this northern kingdom. Actually, the northern kingdom of Israel was the first kingdom uh, to be occupied. They were occupied by the Assyrians. And so when the Assyrians came down and occupied the idolatrous northern kingdom, it was was, uh, the Samaritans then up north who intermarried with uh, with the Assyrians, right? And so they kind of violated the law because Israel was supposed to maintain this blood purity in a sense. And they had built their own temple, and uh, they were part of this northern kingdom when there was a civil war, and, and sought to prevent pilgrimages of the northern people down to the south to the temple in Jerusalem by building their own temple. And so, uh, for all these reasons, uh, when you read John 4, and Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, uh, for all these reasons, we learn this the Jews were hated, excuse me, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, right? In fact, uh, the Jews called the Samaritans not a nation, but a herd. In their, in their writings, widely used Jewish proverbs stated that a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. So, if, if you're Samaritan, I'm Jewish, I don't want to receive anything even from you. It would be terrible to do. And then sometime in the, in the first century, right around the time that Jesus was on the earth, uh, we, we read in some extra-biblical writings that some Samaritans, had broken into the temple and thrown human bones. in the, There were a bunch of bones scattered in the temple. And it was clearly an act of the Samaritans. And so they were hated even more by that time uh, because the, the bones defiled the temple, making it impossible to celebrate on this uh, on a very important feast day. So the worst insult that a Jew could use was to call someone a Samaritan. Worst insult. So that in John 8... When the Pharisees are frustrated with Jesus, this is what they say, John eight forty eight. We are right in saying that you, Jesus, are a Samaritan and therefore possessed by the devil. So if you're a Samaritan, you're, you're like a total outsider. So of course then, in the economy of Jesus and the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes, who's the first believer? It's a Samaritan woman, right? And when Jesus tells this story, the most famous parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the good what? Good Samaritan. Now, when we hear that, we're like, oh, the Good Samaritan, it's like, a, you know, it's like a good Dodger fan. It's hard to imagine, but it could be the case. I mean, there could be one somewhere. Good Samaritan, no, I mean, in this case, it'd be like, that is impossible right? And so when Jesus tells that story, the story carries a a weight that we don't really understand. But what Jesus is doing very early is he's breaking down social barriers, right? And and breaking down these social barriers is absolutely central to the kingdom message because it's what the future will look like. If If you skip ahead to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, this is what you read. A great multitude bowing down, worshiping our new king, King Jesus, who, as we heard the choir sing so beautifully, the grave could not contain. King Jesus now ruling over all of history. Uh, and this will read, a great multitude from every tribe and nation joined together to worship the Lord. So every barrier broken as people are worshiping. And of course, this is what we realize as we gather here, 2016, this has not happened yet. <laughs> We're very tribal, very tribal. Black Lives Matter, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Division between police and African-American community. Dozens killed since Michael Brown. The youngest, 12 years old. (laughs) Increasing tension in Europe between Muslim refugees and established European communities. Jews and Arabs, Sunni and Shia, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel, liberal and conservative, the 1%, the 99%. The homeless, the homeowners. Look anywhere in space and time, as what you see, you find one thing, it's everywhere in the world division and walls and tribes. Everywhere. I can't stress enough that a core element of why Jesus came was Jesus' desires to create a community that stands in distinction to fear, racism, classism, tribalism, and division that is so pandemic and systemic in our culture. It's so, it's so common, we don't even notice it, and yet Jesus came to break down dividing walls. So Jesus' vision is a new community where every dividing wall is broken down, and though this was the vision, we all know this doesn't have my accident. And even after Jesus has cast his vision, it just doesn't just happen. In the first century, what we see are three scenes that in a sense are needed to make this vision a reality. And so these, here's scene one. How does this vision begin to become a reality? Scene one, it, there's a catalytic event. That's scene one. So look at with me at the end of chapter seven of the book of Acts. At that point in chapter seven, all the believers are still gathered in Jerusalem, right? And so um, Stephen is preaching On behalf of the Christian community because the religious establishment has in a sense put him on trial. We don't have time to cover all of that. But when Stephen articulates for the whole Old Testament how it is the tendency of the religious establishment to resist the prophets. His punchline in a sense is this you have resisted Jesus in the same way that historically the religious establishment resisted every single prophet, right? And so he says this, uh, you men are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as the fathers did Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law, and yet you do not keep it. So Stephen is giving this very powerful sermon. When they heard this, they were very angry. They began gnashing their teeth, and then they picked up rocks, and and they killed Stephen. And so when they killed Stephen, then we go to chapter 8. On that day, verse 1, A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So the church, so like the Holy Spirit came, we saw that last week, church is established in Jerusalem, and then there's this catalytic event. On that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem began, and they were, we put this in a passive voice here, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea. In other words, they didn't scatter themselves. They didn't go, but they were in a sense sent. And what sent them? Persecution. In other words, a catalytic event is what sent them. So this transformation that will ultimately occur in the in the community of Christ followers occurs why? It's very important you see this. It always occurs on the far side of trials and tribulation, persecution, right? You go back in the Old Testament, you see this great example of this is in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1 through 12, uh, uh, God predicts through Ezekiel, the nation is going to be destroyed. People are going to come in, they're going to destroy your temple, the Babylonians will come in, they'll take you captive, the glory of God will leave the temple, you'll be hauled off to Babylon, and then at the end of the book of Ezekiel, God says, and you'll be brought back, and you'll be restored, and the temple will be rebuilt, and you'll glorify God, and there's a phrase that occurs both at the beginning with the prediction of destruction and at the end with the prediction of restoration. And the phrase is this, because of this, because of these very events, watch, you will know, Israel will know that I am the Lord. And the word I use here, uh, to, to like my own translation, my brain, when I see that particular Hebrew word of know, this is how I translate in my mind, you will, very important, you will know, listen, by experience that I am the Lord. In other words, you didn't go to a Bible study and heard that I am Jehovah. You did, but you didn't know it this way until what? Cataclysm, trial, and restoration. It's the only way you know. It's not a knowing born out of a sermon. It's a knowing born out of a disruptive experience in your life, a catalytic event. And it's, listen, it's that kind of knowing that is the foundation for us to live in the power of the Spirit and live authentically into God's story. That's, that's the way, that's the only way we know. <laughs> after World War II, uh, Germany hired a, a, pri, a, a prime minister slash chancellor, their first one after World War II, they hired a historian. And they said, we never want, we never want this to happen again, ever again. We don't want a holocaust we don't want a war like this. We don't want this darkness to overtake our land. And this, and this guy, he went back and he looked at, he looked at history and he said, look, the, every time a, civiliz- a civilization has collapsed, it's been because uh, the middle class disappeared. And so we're going to build a social structure to preserve the middle class. And Germany's doing quite well right now. They're struggling with a refugee crisis, an immigration crisis, but, but in the wake of, of this disastrous experience, uh, th- there was a rebuilding that was strong. In the wake of the disaster in Ferguson, for the first time ever, black churches and white churches sat down and began to have dialogue. In the wake of Rwanda, forgiveness. And it's not just collective. It's personal. In the wake of my own, the death of my dad, a new experience of God. In the, A friend of mine, in the wake of cancer, profound transformation. In the wake of job loss, move to a new city, uh, now discovering Christ. Over and over again. Today, this very day, Ecuador in an earthquake, disaster, catalytic event, God will use it. God will use, God doesn't dish out death, God doesn't dish out World War II, but the wisdom of the gospel is this, God uses catalytic events to to move God's people in more fully into God's story over and over and again. So we're transformed, all of us in the room, transformed by fire. (laughs) And this fire that transforms us has a way of melting walls that are between people. Families come together often in the midst of a personal family catalytic uh, catalytic event or crisis. So uh, whether it's 9-11 or Rwanda or, or a, you know, a local event or a, or a family systems event, it's the crisis that enables us to know God now in a new way, not by theory, but by experience. And so my prayer for us as a community is that we are open to disruptive catalytic events in our lives. Because God needs, God uses disruptive catalytic events in our lives to transform us, right? It's, a, it's a, It's a mild catalytic event, but it's nonetheless a catalytic event in my own life. Uh, When we purchased a place up in the mountains, it was with a view toward retirement, not moving there earlier, right? But then a health crisis in the family and kids coming home, and we ended up moving to a different location earlier than we thought we would, and, and don't get me wrong, I love the mountains and I love skiing, but it was unanticipated. Do you understand? And, and, the, and this, there's, there's something in that event uh, that has also been a trial, and yet God uses that trial in profound ways to shape us. So it doesn't have to be a big dark event, though it often is a big dark event, but it's a it's a disruptive event that God is talking about. What's a disruptive event in your life? Right now, there may be one exactly now. Understand what God is doing and through any disruptive event is this: you have an opportunity in disruption to know with a capital K by experience, not by Bible study or sermons, by experience. Now you know God is real in your life. if you, you know, if I could speak to parents in the room, you're praying for your kids? Look, understand this. The story is never over. And, some, you know, sometimes when I'm worried about my kids, I, what I think I need to do is hit them harder with the Bible. No, oh, yeah, look what God says. Listen, I, I can tell you this because I travel and teach to young people, 18 to 30 years old, all over the place. And many of them, you know, they grew up in a Iwana and Sunday school and all that stuff. And then... See you later, and they're gone, and now they're back. And and I'm going to say 90% of the cases, what brought them back was not a sermon. It was a catalytic event. Yeah, it was a a death, it was a cancer, it was an economic meltdown in the family. It was a discovery that their dad, who's also a deacon, is now an alcoholic. And rather than driving them away from the Lord, (laughs) they're back. You don't need to play God in your children's lives. Uh, God will play God better than you, if you can imagine that. And God will use catalytic events to transform. And, And we all know it. I mean, in a room this size, there's an ocean of catalytic events. ADD, cancer, job loss, marriage Challenges, if not implosions, huge decisions, mobility, children, parents, dislocation, catalytic event. So, Israel, uh, uh, excuse me, the church now in chapter 7 has a catalytic event. It's the first martyr, Stephen, he's killed, and then everybody's scattered. They go. Now, what they, in going, what they find is scene two, the curtain rises again, and now we're, in, now we're not in Jerusalem anymore, we're in Samaria, and we find in Samaria fertile soil for the gospel. Now, watch, so watch what happens here in this chapter. Read with me chapter eight, beginning verse four. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. I'm just going to stop right there and make an observation. This is not how I would have anticipated that that sentence would be finished, right? Like I would have... If, I, if I'm just reading it, I would, this is how I would probably have anticipated. Therefore, those who had been scattered went into hiding or gave up on the reality of the gospel because once again, we try and follow God and look, bad things happen. Stephen's dead, we're persecuted, people are in jail, our families are falling apart, I am finished. But instead it says, uh, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. It's an amazing statement for me. Instead of fear, hiding, discouragement, as was the case after the crucifixion of Jesus, John 21, 1, the the disciples had shut the doors for fear of the Jews. They're hiding in a room. And instead of that, now there's this tremendous boldness. Those who had been scattered went about declaring the gospel, right? Uh, And the difference resides in a couple of things. Uh, Number one, the fullness of the Spirit. In other words, we saw last week, uh, uh, these disciples and, and the early church, everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are granted by virtue of the Holy Spirit, like this supernatural capacity to be the presence of Christ in settings, And when Peter is preaching, along with the other uh, uh, apostles early on in Acts chapter 3, chapter 4, they are noted by the religious establishment as being remarkable. And here's why. They are remarkable because it says, they are uneducated fishermen. How do they know the Bible so well? Why are they so articulate? How are they able to do this? And the point of it is this. They are able to do what they do, not because they're so great, but because they are filled with a power not their own. And all of us need that same power if we're to be fully vested in God's story. It's not that God is going to necessarily use you to preach in front of multitudes. It's not even the point. But we will, all of us, declare by, by virtue of our lives and our hospitality and our joy and our peace and our wisdom and our wholeness and our holiness and our, and our passion for justice and the, and the sensitivity of our hearts, God will use us to declare through our life, there's something different here. I belong to a different king. And that will only happen not if I'm filled with Bible knowledge, but if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I must be filled. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you missed last week and go back and see? This is vital in our lives. And here's the other thing you see here that creates this, this boldness it's the power of experience. Because uh, when, when uh, preaching begins early, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, the church is exploding. The religious establishment goes to Peter and say, this is my paraphrase, shut up, right? Like, we don't want you preaching anymore. I don't want to hear another word about Jesus. And here's Peter's response. And I love this response. It's actually very powerful. Peter says this, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. We can't stop talking about it. I mean, I can. Sometimes, with respect to Jesus, <clears throat> like, why couldn't they stop talking about it? If you go upstream a little bit here, you'll understand something here. <laughs> they can't stop talking about it because they have a natural enthusiasm that's that's gonna it's gonna overflow. Now, some of you in the room have natural enthusiasm about various things. And the things about which you have enthusiasm are um, uh, closely related to your experiences. True? In all, in all of our lives. I mean, I should have brought it up here. I was San Francisco Giants um, coffee mug, right? Because, I, because I'm a baseball fan. And when they won the World Series, three out of the last five years, I'll just let you know, right? Um, it's a big deal. And to the staff's annoyance, I can't stop talking about it when that happens, right? I come in with my sweatshirt on and my mug and, ha-ha, you're a Mariners fan. Too bad for you. Even, uh, you know, Thursday, we were, our staff was at a Mariner game and I had my giant sweatshirt on and I walked through the, the uh, little gate there and the guy takes my ticket and the, this... This young man of 23 or something, he goes, Are you a Giant fan? And I go, Yes. And he says, Lucky. Do you love that? I said, It wasn't always this way. 40 years of suffering, right? But it's, it's close to my experience. And, it, you know, that enthusiasm is rooted in my relationship with my dad and. Hot chocolate at Candlestick Park, and baseball's weird that way, right? It's in your blood. Is Jesus that way? Yes. Yes, when, yes, when we follow the example of the disciples and devo- listen, devote our lives to three things: Acts two forty two, teaching, prayer, and fellowship. Teaching, prayer, and fellowship. In other words, if you're li- if you're if in your life you're receiving teaching, there's there's real prayer in your life, and there's actual fellowship in your life, then here's, I promise you this, here's what will happen. You will have experience with Jesus. Teaching plus prayer plus fellowship equals experience with Jesus. Experience with Jesus then becomes that about which you cannot stop talking. Teaching, prayer, fellowship. And I'll just say, those are three legs of a stool, and all of us in the room uh, gravitate toward one leg, or maybe two legs, and we all resist the leg, and we all need all the legs, right? If we're going to have a genuine experience with Jesus, I I can't blow off teaching, or prayer, or fellowship. And so, you know, in a moment here, when we respond, I'm just going to challenge you by asking you, well, which leg is short on your stool. And if it's fellowship, then build relationship. And if it's prayer, then sit down with your spouse and say, how will we pray together? Because there is, we, we miss experience when we're not nurturing the soil of our hearts so that the Holy Spirit is free to blossom. Teaching, prayer, and fellowship. So the boldness here, and this, and this preaching isn't forced, you know, nor will i force it go out and share with 10 people no <laughs> i'm going upstream and i'm saying look at your stool and your three legs because if you if you are devoting in some practical way in your life if you're devoting yourself to teaching prayer and fellowship you'll share i don't have to motivate you it'll be the natural outflow of that work of god in your life so verses 5 through 8 philip then goes down to samaria and preaches christ to the Samaritans. And, and, and the meaning of this is seen in verse 12. And so I'm just going to look at verse 12 for a moment here. But when they believed Philip uh, uh, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, they, the Samaritans, were being baptized, men and women alike, right? And, and so he goes down, he preaches, and look at verse, back up a little bit, uh, verse 6 to 8, the crowd, this is when Philip preaches to the Samaritans, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and they heard and saw signs. In the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out and shouting with a loud shout, and many who had been paralyzed were healed, and there was much rejoicing in the city. This is a remarkable moment, and it was, like if you're Jewish, entirely unanticipated, right? Remember John 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember the bones in the temple? Remember uh, Jesus derogatorily being called a Samaritan? And now here's Philip, and he's not going to a Samaritan. What's he doing? He's going to Samaria, and he's preaching throughout the region. That's not easy for him, right? Post-World War II, in the Torchbury community, Major Thomas, this British major, is uh, you know driving through... Uh, northern Germany, because he's involved in the reconstruction work and the Marshall Plan and all that stuff. And uh, there's a German soldier uh, hitchhiking. And Major Thomas picks up a German soldier, get in the car, you know, and then he begins to talk to him and he takes him to a meeting at which Major Thomas is preaching that evening. The German soldier uh, receives Christ and goes on to establish uh, the second largest uh, torture Bible school and, 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 and serves as a director of Bible school uh, for 40 years. And I'd often heard Major Thomas tell the story of how, you know, he had the guts, quote-unquote, to pick up this hated German soldier. And it was so fun uh, then one day to sit down with Peter Vigan, the German soldier, and say, you think it was hard for him to pick me up? How hard do you think it was for me to get in the car? <laughs> right? I mean, think about that. That's Samaria. That's they go. Why? Listen. When Christ is in me, your tribe no longer matters because God is creating a new tribe in which there is no distinction. Galatians 3. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, homeless, homeowner, Democrat, Republican, new. Why are you building walls? So, there's this tremendous boldness, and as a result of the boldness, tremendous receptivity. Tremendous receptivity. It says here, there was much rejoicing in the city. I, you know, I've seen similar experiences to, I think, what happened here, and I'll try and describe one for you so you understand, like, the analogous power, right? Uh, in, in, I was in India once, uh, teaching, and on a Sunday, we went and did an outreach in a village of about 200, to do an outreach in a village uh, the school needed permission from the chief, the chief had given permission, so the whole village gathers on Sunday afternoon, it's a, it's a day like today, it's 70 degrees, it's perfect, and the entire village, 100% of the village, shows up to hear the gospel. And afterwards, you can't give Bibles away in India because that's called uh, uh, pros- proselytizing, but you can sell them. And so they said, hey, so we have Bibles for sale, a penny apiece, you know, after the, after the thing. And if you want to come forward and get a Bible uh, or just come forward and get prayed for, we will pray for you, right? And this whole thing's going on in Hindi. I don't understand any of it. I'm just there watching things unfold. And then four hours later, we leave because every 200 people came and bought a Bible. 200 people asked for prayer. 200 people received Christ. The whole village came to Christ, including the, the Hindu chief, everyone. And we go back to the school, there's a little meeting and we're in this, we're in this room and it's, and it's winter so it got cold at night and they lit a barbecue in the room and so everybody's sitting there with kind of wet hankies on their, you know, faces to not inhale the fumes so that we live and then, and then, and then you know, the director of the school says, so, uh, you know, I met with the chief and he's asked for two of you to come and start a church here because he said, if you lead us to Christ, you can't leave us alone. And then two students, and then there was, we had a prayer meeting, and then two, two students raised their hands, we'll go there, we'll become pastors. Now, that's amazing to me. And then I kind of go, man, if, what if we held a meeting at Green Lake when it's 70 degrees and said, hey, come hear the gospel. Two, could we even get 200 people out of a city of 2 million? I don't know. Why? But I kind of asked the question in my journal, why not here? Why not now? And there's many reasons. I focus, I'll just give you one reason why it's hard here and now. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why. Mark 10.25. Lots of reasons for this. But in Matthew 10.22, it says this. Sometimes the seed is choked by the, deceitful, the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. In other words, Jesus interesting. But, you know, my life is full already, actually. <laughs> Upward mobility, vacation house, travel. I got, you know, I got time problems, but I'm actually pretty fine. Oh, man. Uh, when, if, you know, when there's a message to a group of people who have nothing, when I have empty hands, I'm open. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? And here's the, here's the good news. We're all poor, actually. <laughs> Maybe not materially, but in other ways. Oh yeah, rich. But how about my emotional life? How about how about intimacy? How about how about relationship? How about family? Am I am I like am I rich everywhere? No. What? But uh, f- for Samaria, collective event, and the collective response. And then finally, very quickly, we got to look at Simon. Because I'll just summarize for the sake of time. Here's what happens to Simon. Simon is a guy who believes, and he was a magician. And you can kind of read about him, in, uh, particularly in verse 9. Simon was called, he was called the great power of God. So, he, like, it says that he becomes a believer. And then he watches Peter pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And he, then he goes to Peter And he says, pulls out his wallet. Hey, like I want that power. How much can I give you so that I can get that power too? Right? And then if you know the story, Peter says, away with you, you know. And then he asks him to repent. And he does repent. And he goes on to be transformed. But Simon represents a particular kind of person. um, Like among us even. Here's Simon. Simon is the one who, (laughs) like he loves the stage, and the limelight, and the big moment, and the big gathering, and the and the adrenaline event. Simon wants to be like at the cusp of excitement, and Peter says to Simon, look, walk quietly with God, because that's what you, Simon, need. You don't need travel. You don't need uh, you know, stars and, and loud noises and fireworks, you need to wake up every morning and just be content with loving Jesus. And for most of us in the room, that's the reality of it, right? We're looking for the big event. We're looking for the big thing. Can I say to you, look, if you work at at, at a law firm or if you're just changing another diaper or if it's just another day at Como or it's another day downtown in the motels, whatever it is that God has for you, what, like, that is your field and God is changing you. But watch this. He's changing you Perceptibly, little by little, by little, by little, like it's like running. You get up, you do it, nothing spectacular happens, but you are being transformed. Why is this so important? Because overwhelmingly, this is the text of the Bible. Moses, 40 years boring in the wilderness, you know, Paul, 10 making, 14 years. Joseph, 25 years in prison. Peter, you know, failure, running. I'm going fishing again. Look, there's, there's normal, and then there's like catalytic events, and we need both. But Simon is addicted to catalytic events. And God says to Simon, buddy, relax. Some guy came to us years ago. Uh, in our ministry in the mountains, and he came out of the New Age movement, and he'd been on talk shows and written books about being a, ch- you know, a channeler of the divine and all this stuff. And as soon as he was with us, you know, he wanted to kind of contact Oprah and, 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 and you know get on the circuit again. And I was like this, no, I don't want anyone to hear from you for five years because you are addicted to the limelight, buddy. And you know what you need? You're waking up in your morning... Make a cup of coffee and love Jesus. And let God build your life. So here's the deal as we close. God's sending all of us out. And he will break down walls. But only if we're allowing the wind of the Holy Spirit to move us. So what's the short leg on your stool this morning? Teaching? Fellowship? Prayer? Adjust adjust. Don't let the day end without telling someone, God spoke to me today. I'm going to start spending time in the Word, out of the limelight. Or God spoke to me today. I'm going to make a priority of praying together. (laughs) Or God spoke to me. And I need fellowship. I've been isolating. Respond. Father, meet us now as we seek to be shaped by you to be people of hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.